The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. And a very wild world it is, whether we live in urban areas or wilderness, as my guest today, Adam Roberts, knows very well. Adam, having helped to found Born Free USA, and that organization was born much further back in our collective history. Born Free is one of those rare organizations that literally bridges all the gaps between our human relationships with animals, be it pets, entertainment, zoos, and to the wild and wilderness from which these captive representatives come to us in our everyday lives. A bridge leading from our all-too-human hearts and minds to living beings and landscapes, when we used to take from the wild for our entertainment to rewilding animals back into their own worlds for their own well-being. A true focus on what is best for the animals rather than what works best for us. And that's why today's conversation will be about Born Free and so exciting. So, without much further, I'd like to welcome Adam Roberts, CEO of Born Free USA. Thank you very much for having me. It's so good to talk to you today. Well, it's a pleasure, and it's it's very exciting for me, and I thank you for taking the time. I know it's a busy schedule and a hectic time of year. So, uh, again, to get started, I have to thank PAWS, the Performing Animal Welfare Society, because that... Uh, conference that I attended is where I met Adam and it was a conference dealing with captive wildlife issues and Adam moderated several and varied panel discussions. Adam's wide breadth of knowledge had him as uh, leading through these conversations from people from all over the world and a variety of issues from elephants to big cats to campaigns and advocacy. And most importantly, uh, Adam was uh, educating me as a listener and the entire audience in how we deal with the captive issues that we're dealing with today as so much of our knowledge, science, research, and data has changed over the past several decades. So over the next hour, we're going to try and cover a lot of territory, but it's important to start with knowing a bit more about Adam. So Adam, why don't you tell us a bit about you and then how that led to Born Free? Well, I'd be happy to, although I have to admit that I very much prefer talking about the issues than myself. I will give you a little bit of background. I, um, I graduated from college in 1990 with a degree in English literature, which I 
found uh, enabled me to really sort of do anything, but qualified me to do nothing, which meant uh, I was destined for the world of nonprofit animal advocacy. I became a, a vegetarian in college just by seeing some video images of livestock slaughter and decided that at that exact moment I just didn't want to have any part in that kind of cruelty and so I became a vegetarian and, uh, and never really looked back so once I moved to Washington DC after school ended I was able to get a job in the animal protection community a very entry-level position uh, which gave me an opportunity to learn about all the different things that were happening out there from uh, elephant slaughter, commercial whaling, laboratory animal abuse, farm animal abuse. There were so many issues uh, that needed attention. But ultimately, <clears throat> there was an opening, there was a void in our organization in terms of the work on endangered species trade, uh, the trade in live animals internationally, but also elephant ivory, rhino horn, tiger bone, lion trophies, bear gallbladders. There were so many issues that we were facing, and I started working on these issues and eventually lobbied on the Endangered Species Act in Congress and started attending international meetings of the Conference of the Parties to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, or CITES, and that's really what sort of piqued my primary interest in wildlife trade as a focus for my advocacy work, and that's really what I focused on, quite frankly, for the past two decades, and of course, it's led me to do many other things and deal with many other issues, but that was sort of the primary driving factor uh, that got me focused on these issues, this international work, and how I got to where I am today. Well, you see, as much as you might not like talking about yourself, having that understanding helps us understand just why you're so good at what you do and why Born Free benef benefits from your being there and starting Born Free USA. You have, as you said, over two decades of experience in dealing with the back end, the administration side, literally and figuratively, of a wide variety of issues, which is what we talk about and cover on Our Wild World. So um, let's get from there to where you were and how that literally led you to Born Free, the organization itself. Sure. Well, <clears throat> while I was doing that international trade work in the sort of mid-90s, uh, I met and became friends with Will Travers, who was the son of Bill Travers and Virginia McKenna, and they were the stars of the iconic film Born Free, which told the story in the 1960s of George Adamson, the first game warden in Kenya, and his wife Joy Adamson, who was a, a naturalist and a painter, um, and their love of wildlife and their wildlife interactions, of course, led to the, the film Born Free, as I mentioned, uh, which related to uh, Elsa the Lioness. George Adamson had shot um, a, a um, grown lion and then found out that she had a number of cubs with her and they um, kept some of those cubs for a short while but ultimately um, had to get rid of most of them uh, and then kept one naming her Elsa and that's the one that they kept um, for her entire life until she was ready to be released into the wild and they let her go and she ended up being free in Kenya once again and having a family and it was an amazing story and so Will and I became friends working on this international wildlife trade work, especially under CITES, and we always talked about how great it would be to have a companion organization to the one that he and his parents started in the United Kingdom, Born Free Foundation, in America, specifically because I think the animal protection movement in America really lacked the sort of niche focus that Born Free had, 
the mission of Born Free is to keep wildlife in the wild. And they look at this in, in a sense of compassionate conservation, trying to look at both the individual animals who have feelings and needs, biological, behavioral, emotional, but also conserve entire, entire species. And we felt that this was really lacking in the American animal protection movement. You had organizations that were focused on endangered species conservation, on individual animal welfare, whether it was farm animals or lab animals. You had sanctuary operations which gave individual animals lifetime care. But there were very few that really blended all of these aspects together. And, and that's what Born Free did. So in, um, in the early 2000s, in 2002, we set up Born Free just with me as a volunteer to get a website and our charity registration and, uh, and sort of put the feeler out there and see if this brand of compassionate conservation that we were talking about was going to fly in this country. And then in 2005, so almost 10 years ago, I came on full time and it was literally uh, uh, me and a laptop in my living room just taking a shot and seeing if it would work. And here we are 10 years later and uh, we've, we've merged in 2007 with the Animal Protection Institute based in California. So now we have a bi-coastal operation. We have a Born Free USA primate sanctuary down in Texas where we have more than 600 rescued monkeys living free or at least as free as they can be on 186 acres of amazing land. Uh, and then we have a global operation because of our partnership with Born Free Foundation in the United Kingdom. So there's the UK office, the US office, but we also have an operation in Nairobi, Kenya, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, in Colombo, Sri Lanka. So we're really sort of spreading the work that we do around the world. This is this is amazing. I've just been educated tremendously. Although I have read your um, visited your websites, there's Born Free uh, uh, USA, and that is uh, www.bornfreeusa.org. There's Born Free in the UK. There's the Animal Protection Institute API, and then there's the various um, organizations and sanctuaries that Adam was just talking about. Uh, I did notice we were breaking up just a little bit, so we've got uh, about another eight minutes in this first section, so uh, stick with us, and uh, let's get into a little bit more. You just covered a whole lot of territory right there, Adam, so uh, you started Born Free USA basically on a, a shoestring and, and a dime, and to see where it, it took off. What were the issues that you were dealing with back in 2002 um, that... Well, you did tell us the issues. How did you go about sort of uh, experimenting, researching, finding out how all these a uh, various aspects, animal welfare, animal rights, to the rewilding, to the issues that were happening and that were very familiar and much more um, commonplace in, the, in Europe and, let's say, across Africa where there are still masses of free-ranging wildlife and blending that together. How did you pull that all together here in the U.S. in terms of reaching out or outreach with these various organizations? Yeah, I think the key focus was that people genuinely cared about wildlife and the idea of keeping these wild animals in captivity is anathema to so many people that we were really able to build a very strong base of support. People who were willing to say that Asian elephants highly endangered in the wild, some 40,000 left living in the wild in Asia, do not belong performing in circuses. Tigers and other um, large predators or African elephants do not belong 
along in American zoos where they cannot have their natural needs replicated uh, to any extent, of course. Uh, these were all issues that we felt were really important and, and that people embraced. But then we started to look a little bit deeper at things like the exotic pet trade, people who keep chimpanzees, big cats, as pets in their homes and in their backyards. And obviously, it's a burgeoning issue across the country with people having greater access to these animals, greater funds to uh, be able to acquire these animals. But the end, at the end of the day, when we looked at the issue, we realized that, number one, it was inappropriate for these animals' uh, innate needs to keep them in captivity, that they were cruelly treated in order to put them, force them, uh, make them beholden to the pet trade. But then there was also a real drain on society because these animals would ultimately attack other people or other animals. They would be released, causing uh, problems in the community or in the uh, situation with large reptiles. They'd be released and become invasive species, competing with indigenous wildlife for habitat and prey. So there are all these really important issues that, that were just starting to bubble up and come to the forefront of the national animal protection psyche and we were able to sort of um, get a hold of that and really push it and, and that made us have an opportunity or gave us an opportunity uh, to put our imprint into the animal protection landscape here in this country. That is a huge scope and um, it, it makes me curious how well or um, that's maybe an inappropriate way to put it, um, how difficult it is to keep tabs on all of this. So how does Born Free and you, how do you go about keeping tabs on what's in, as you'd mentioned, the private pet trade, the exotics, the, the breeders, the zoos, the sanctuary? I realize we're talking about uh, accredited and, and non-accredited things to private holdings. And this feeling we have here in the U.S., the emotional, more knee-jerk, we love these animals, so therefore they love us back. So I want to have one. And that connection of losing the wildness or wanting to own this piece of wildness. How do you, how do you pull all that together? Well, I think it's really about messaging. It's how you frame the conversation for the public. And, you know, if we were just talking about animals and what animals need in our estimation, you'll probably lose a significant portion of the audience because, as you say, there are people who very much want to see, who covet, who want to play with, be around, own these wild animals because, if nothing else, they can. But we have to remember and, and we have to admit, quite frankly, these animals are amazing. You know, when you look at a lion cub or a tiger cub, a chimpanzee infant, they're amazing animals and they're beautiful and they're really alluring. And so at the end of the day, you know, we understand why people want these animals. But then there's a disconnect because these animals are inappropriate for captivity. Of course, they grow to be big and dangerous in maturity. But it's really about telling people the risks to society as a whole that allows us to get a, a foot into the door of having that conversation. So I think if we were just saying it is unfair to keep a macaque in somebody's house to remove their fingernails and file their teeth, to keep them in a cage and tether them for their entire lives just because you want to have that animal around, you probably wouldn't have as much widespread support. But when you show that those same animals are attacking children or, or actually attacking adults and are really causing trouble in society, then at the end of the day, people pay a little bit closer attention and it opens the door for us to have a, a broader dialogue. And, and that's where we can really make some headway. That's interesting because I would have thought 
that it would be the opposite. That if you reached out to people um, more about being able to meet the animals' needs and that emotional side that we do we do need to we we love them, so therefore we need to provide for them without the scare factor of the risk. But you're saying that highlighting the risk is not only detrimental to us and our human communities, our neighbors, literally, who live with these nearby these animals, should they <coughs> get loose, like the o- Ohio Iowa. Uh, mm-hmm. Disaster. Um, I always get those two confused. Ohio mm-hmm. and Iowa, not the disasters. To um, messaging that the risk is just as important and the detriment that it does to the animal. Right. Exactly. Well, and that's it. And look, you know, there there are these multiple aspects to all of this, right? So there's the animal welfare issue. There's the conservation issue because we have to remember that some of these species are imperiled in the wild and they're being imported into America either to be bred for commercial trade or for the pet industry directly. So you have animal welfare, you have conservation, and then you have the human uh, safety element, the public safety element. So all of those things uh, play together to make the case, from our perspective at least, that these animals don't belong in captivity. And it's quite frankly the same with zoos and with circuses where we're taking these animals out of their natural environment, forcing them to into captivity because of, of our own desire to see them, not because it's what is in those animals' best interest. So it really is messaging to help us people, us humans, understand that we are much more deeply connected to these other earthlings we share this planet with, non-human beings, and their needs, and that it's not just about us. Yeah, that's right. You have to have a sense of of ethics that allows you to say, even though I can acquire these animals, whether it's for a zoo or a circus, private ownership, a wild animal trapped for, for his or her fur, all of these issues, you know, these are things that humans can do to animals, but it takes a really important ethic to drive us away from doing it even though we can and that's where our educational work at Born Free is so important to try and tell people why they shouldn't wear fur, why they shouldn't keep exotic animals as pets, why they shouldn't go to zoos and circuses, and why they shouldn't buy into the products of the international wildlife trade. These are all the types of work that we do and it's that kind of educational outreach that we think at the end of the day is going to change consumer attitudes and going to make the world better for animals everywhere. Well this is a huge scope. It's a huge undertaking. So right now we need to cut away to a break. I would like to say again, my guest today is Adam Roberts. We're having a fascinating conversation. So do stick with us. We're going to get a bit more into the actual issues and how Born Free and Adam get across the messaging we've just been talking about. So you can visit www.bornfreeusa.org and learn more about Born Free. And we'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. 
The Wild Effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World. And my guest today, Adam Roberts, CEO of Born Free USA. So during the first section, Adam gave us a great background of not only his uh, life and how he got involved in Born Free, but why Born Free UK, the Animal Protection Institute, and Born Free USA is necessary today. There has been a huge shift uh, I'd say over not only just the last five to ten years, ten to twenty years to fifty years ago, um, Adam was telling us about how we can easily acquire exotics, wildlife, and keep them in captivity, and the shift of should we to we shouldn't, and this messaging that's required today to say to stigmatize keeping wild animals in captivity. Tell us a little bit more about some of the some of the actual campaigns and issues that you you and Born Free are working on, from legislation to sanctuary? Sure. Well, we do have some concerted campaigns, and everything that we do here, we try and integrate um, sort of our public outreach, our international campaign portfolio, and then some form of legislative activity, whether it's at the state or federal level. And, of course, we also assist wherever possible in uh, overseas work on these same issues. So it is a pretty vast portfolio. Um, obviously, the, this Congress is now coming to an end, and we'll have missed an opportunity, I think, for this Congress to do some really amazing things for animals. But we'll continue that work next year. So, for example, on the trapping issue, you know, obviously we're very concerned about all animals that are snared or caught in barbaric steel jaw leg hole traps, these padded or steel toothed traps that haven't changed fundamentally since the 1600s and are still put out in public places in the wild to catch fur bearers to feed the fur industry. And we're obviously very conscious of this being a problem. It's incredibly cruel for the animals. 
they may be caught and captured for uh, for days, stuck by their leg, tethered. Uh, you have obviously the inset of of gangrene and other <clears throat> impossible things for the, the animals to deal with. And so, at the end of the day, it's an incredibly cruel industry. And and we we understand that we're probably not going to be able to shut down trapping in America, but we might be able to get Congress and others to at least recognize that this kind of cruel, barbaric trapping has no place in our national wildlife refuge system. And so, we're focused very much on that aspect of the wilderness work we do, and trying to at least make sure that our national wildlife refuges are actual refuges for the wildlife and quite frankly safe for the people that go to visit them as well. So we're trying to get trapping off national wildlife refuges. And similarly with the exotic pet issue, uh, we're working on a bill called the Captive Primate Safety Act, which would end the interstate movement of primates if they're going to be kept as pets. We had some significant success about a decade ago getting Congress to pass legislation to do the same with big cats. The Captive Wildlife Safety Act back then prohibited the interstate movement of lions, leopards, tigers, uh, uh, hybrids of these animals, cougars, if they were destined for the pet trade. And so now we're trying to add primates to that list because we know that primates can also be incredibly dangerous and obviously don't belong in people's homes. And as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you know, Born Free is particularly interested in that issue of primate ownership by humans because we have the sanctuary down in Texas where we're taking in these primates, not only from private owners, but also from roadside zoos, from biomedical research labs and other sources, and giving them a life worth living for the rest of their natural lives. So we definitely have a vested interest in trying to reduce the number of animals that are in need of homes by reducing the number of animals that are traded as exotic pets. And then probably one of our biggest issues right now is on the international wildlife trade, both rhino horn and elephant ivory. And that would be worth getting into quite a bit if you're willing, because there's so much emphasis on that right now with the elephant poaching crisis being at historic proportions. Absolutely. Let's go there. We've, we've got time. Let's, let's go there because it is critical. And I just want to interject here for our listeners, our audience, just how important your actions, your individual actions have on the global stage. What you decide to do, the pet you choose not to get from the puppy mill or from online, um, the visit the appropriate places, sanctuary um, organizations and zoos that come from the attitude and the perspective of research, scientific well-being, rights and welfare for the animals versus just entertainment for us. So, um, as Adam was saying, elephants, rhinos, it's, it's hugely on the international scale. And it's not just because it's trending or because it's faddish, but because these animals are losing their ability, at the rate they're being taken, they're losing the ability to be able to uh, procreate, to breed, to keep viable populations going into the future. So tell us a little bit about, more about this, Adam, please. Sure. Well, it's been one of our focuses definitely for the past couple of decades. And, you know, the the elephant uh, poaching crisis, as I mentioned, is at historic proportions. We estimate at Born Free that somewhere between 35,000 and 50,000 elephants are being slaughtered every year now in Africa 
to satisfy the global demand for their ivory, primarily in China and then other places in Southeast Asia like Laos and Vietnam and Thailand, but also right here in America. And this ivory trade is really driving the poaching that's wiping the species out. And we fear that in some places, especially in West and Central Africa, the forest elephants there could actually go extinct in the next 10 or 15 years. And then, of course, the poaching and the trading will move eastward across the continent to Kenya, to Tanzania. And then when those elephants are down to their last few, they'll start to move south to the strongholds, whether it's Zimbabwe or South Africa, Mozambique, Botswana, Namibia. So it really is a, a global crisis because it's a continent-wide crisis across Africa. And what I found, especially in looking at sort of the past 25 years of advocacy for elephants, that we've reached a point where the, the, the depiction of elephants being slaughtered in the wild is not enough to get the consumer to stop buying the ivory or the governments to crack down on the ivory trade because equally you'll have tales of stockpiled ivory from poachers that should be sold and the money plowed back into conservation. You'll have people talking about crop damage in Namibia and how elephants are taking away the livelihood of farmers and so they need cold and then the ivory sold. There are all these excuses for the carnage. So what we did at Born Free this year was try to take a slightly different tactic in our approach to elephant advocacy to try and stop the ivory trade. And we produced two reports. The first was called Ivory's Curse, and both of these are available at our website, bornfreeusa.org. And Ivory's Curse looked at the militarization and professionalism of the elephant poaching industry. You know, it used to be that you would have opportunistic poachers killing elephants in Africa in order to make a few bucks from the sale of ivory. But now you've got these incredibly sophisticated, organized criminal syndicates, networks all across the continent, causing people to poach ivory consolidate the ivory, and ship the ivory out of Africa. And that's our second report that we issued this year. It's called Out of Africa. And that looks at the mechanisms by which ivory is moved from point A to point B, from Africa to Asia. And by hopefully identifying those kinds of choke points along the way, we might be able to reduce the number of elephants poached because the profiteers and the shippers of ivory will have a much more difficult time getting their ivory to market. And of course, if you can't get your ivory to market, there's no more profitability in killing the elephants. So these two reports, Ivory's Curse and Out of Africa, I think are really exciting, innovative ways to look at the ivory trade, identify who the actors are behind the ivory trade, and give governments around the world the information they need to try and stop the ivory trade. And just this week, Prince William was talking at the World Bank. He was addressing the World Bank, and he actually referenced Born Free's report in showing these transit routes and the mechanisms by which the ivory is moved. So it's really reached to some pretty high levels of uh, awareness, and that, of course, is really exciting when you do this animal advocacy work. And you also just mentioned Prince William. I just saw a post the other day that he's asking the uh, Royal House of England to destroy all their ivory. So there's a lot of historical significance, sentimental value, and political value attached to ivory throughout our human history and our use of elephants when there seem to be so many of them. You said an interesting fact. The Just last year, um, the campaign of elephant advocacy and anti-poaching was uh, 
campaigns such as 96 elephants a day, that 35,000 a year were being killed, leading to 96 a day. As of 2014 and into 2015, it's already overarched that number. We're losing them at an unsustainable number and unsustainable in so many ways, which you've just pointed out. But that leads me to something you were talking about, the militarization of poaching, how well organized these syndicates are, that it's not just some person out there in the old days that would be the old elephant hunters and trying to make a few bucks, as you said. But this also is leading to very intense funding and the need to bring up the militarization of anti-poaching. And when there's so much when there's only so much money to go around of which there is a lot what i what i'm gathering what born free is doing which i think is so amazing about born free's work that is makes it stand above apart and unique from so many other organizations is that you're trying to message that we need to look at this differently and that perhaps if we can reduce the militarization of all of this, the scaling up this war on wildlife, then that same amount of funding could actually go to benefit the people who are living with quote-unquote problem animals, whose livelihoods uh, are being destroyed where they live with these animals in situ in the wild. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you've got to have targeted strategies for dealing with these very uh, complex geopolitical issues. And, you know, the recommendations that we have in both of our reports are, are quite similar to the recommendations we've been making for a while. They're just bolstered by some significant data and analysis uh, of the problems on the ground. And so, you know, the first thing you have to do, I think, is recognize that wildlife crime is international organized crime. It's no different in that respect than the drug trade, the human trafficking trade, and uh, the uh, drug running trade. So you have all of these international crimes that are incredibly profitable, and you have to recognize that wildlife trade is among them. In fact, the illegal wildlife trade is thought to be valued at some $20 billion a year annually. So there's some real money to be made out there, which is why these profiteers engage in this kind of criminal and horrific behavior because the, the value of the product is so significant. And, you know, when we talk about the value of the product, you're talking about more than $2,000 for a kilo of elephant ivory and something like $60,000 for the same amount of rhino horn. So it really is worth its weight in gold or its weight in heroin, these wildlife products. So the first thing we have to do is recognize that this is organized crime. And then the second thing we have to do, I think, is really focus our resources in trying to crack down as much as possible on the movement of the product, on the movement of the rhino horn, the movement of the ivory. You know, we feel very strongly that you've got to equip park rangers on the ground, these wildlife law enforcement officers that are literally laying their lives on the line every day to preserve their national uh, wildlife heritage. But at the same time, we want to make sure that they're equipped. It's not just about guns. It's about training, making sure that they have swimming lessons so they don't drown while going through water to chase poachers, uh, making sure they have first aid kits so if they are injured in the field, they don't die before they can get help. You know, these are very simple, straightforward things that we can do to assist these guys who, as I say, are real heroes uh, putting their lives on the line to save wild animals. But then also, we've got to deal with, deal with the corporations that are involved. So what we found, for example, is that in Africa, you've got these shipping companies at uh, seaports, 
and they've got these 20 ton containers that are going to leave Africa regularly on ships. And these containers might contain 18 tons of dried seaweed or shells or nuts, a very legal product leaving Africa, but then someone slips two tons of ivory in that same container. So we think by focusing on that aspect of the wildlife trade, the transit and transport side of the trade, we can really crack down and start to open those containers, remove the ivory, and as I mentioned before, take away the profitability of killing elephants. And once we do that, you're going to see the poaching stop because people are going to move on to make money in other ways. So it's not only stigmatizing using wildlife products, dead or alive, in our um, human lifestyle, but it's also gearing up and making aware and cutting off, literally cutting off the supply lines so that the demand, we have to reduce the demand, but we also have to get in there, as you're saying, and stop the transit, the supply lines, the physical supply lines. Yeah, that's right. And look, you know, everyone recognizes that demand in China is what kills elephants. And if we can get the Chinese government to crack down and we can get the Chinese people to stop demanding ivory, uh, it's going to save elephants. But that could take a very long time before these consumer attitudes change. And it's time that the elephants don't have. So we've got to try and do other things to save the elephants on the ground. Look, the profit margin for ivory is unbelievable. So when you kill an elephant and you sell that ivory at the point of consolidation before it leaves Africa, you're looking at a markup in the bush price of about 500% which is unbelievably astounding in its own right. But that same piece of ivory, when it reaches the destination market in China, could be up 4,000%. So there's that incredible financial incentive that has to be taken away if you want to save elephants and stop the trade. When you've got a single ivory bracelet selling for more than 1,000 US dollars in China, you have a real profitability there for the poachers and the profiteers who want to apply their deadly trade. This is just astonishing, and we're going to have to cut to a break here in about a minute. So I just want to do a quick little recap and where we're going to start our next um, conversation. We're talking about value, the dollar value, and the human um, focus on this benchmark of wealth. So what I would like to do when we come back from the break is to talk about how we can switch this value of the dead or trade in captive animals to the campaigns and the work that Born Free is doing on to highlight the value of the living animal, not only for us here in the U.S. that like to benefit from the entertainment side of it or the um, enjoyment side of it, but on the African side, the value of the living animals. So stick with us. My guest is Adam Roberts, CEO of Born Free USA. Check out their website, bornfreeusa.org, and uh, we will be right back after the break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. 
Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're talking with Adam Roberts of Born Free USA, which is much bigger than just the USA. It goes into the UK. It works in Africa. works in Ethiopia. It works all over the world. And their strategies are amazing because they're coming at it from a very different perspective. And we need all perspectives and we need all avenues to address the crisis that Adam has been telling us about, the increase in wildlife crime, wildlife trafficking in both dead and live animal parts. So before the break, we were talking about value. And what I talk about a lot on Our Wild World is switching our human idea of what value is from the thickness of our wallet, dollar bills with faces on them, currency, whatever it may be, to the actual value of the living being. What what do you do at Born Free to bring up that perspective, the aesthetics, the resources, that these animals alive are important. They play an important role on our on our world. Yeah, well, we try and tackle that issue in quite a variety of ways. The first is definitely through public education, you know, talking about the intrinsic value of these animals. And we talk a lot about elephants, and it's obviously applicable here because with elephants you have a matriarchal society where grandmothers and daughters, granddaughters, aunts, nieces all live together for decades and decades their whole lives. And it's an incredibly important bond, an incredibly important aesthetic to have these elephants being able to live that natural life because to the poacher or the hunter, even if it's a lawful sports hunter who wants to kill an elephant as a quote-unquote trophy, they're taking away that animal and they're causing incredible pain and suffering to the individual animal, to the others of the family who are left behind and have to mourn the death of that animal. 
and then to the ecosystem as a whole. And when that hunter does take that animal or that poacher takes that animal, there might be, in the case of the hunter, $10,000 or $20,000 that goes back into some form of commercial activity. I, I hesitate to say it goes back into conservation because that money is going to be held with a with a hunting outfitting company. That hunting outfitting company might be based in Europe. It might be based overseas somewhere. It's not necessarily the local people in Africa who profit from the killing of that elephant. But by uh, contrast, if you allow those elephants to live their entire lives free and wild, you have an ecotourism benefit from the photographic safari that will obviously last 50, 60, 70 years in the case of African elephants and bring in considerably more revenue to the local communities than the one dead elephant ever will. So we think it's really important uh, to sort of highlight these issues because not only do these elephants have an intrinsic value unto themselves, but they can bring significant value to the communities that live with them for generations to come. So let me just play devil's advocate here for a second. I do not in any way, shape, or form condone trophy hunting. Um, but there are those areas in Africa, and the argument is that not all areas are conducive to photographic or ecotourism, and yet there are still very... Um, there are communities that live there that, as you said, don't benefit from what I call leakage from outsourced hunting companies or outsourced tourism companies. So what about hunting? And I know this is a huge, conver a huge conversation, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but hunting that benefits, and let's call it sustainable, not necessarily of the megafauna, the charismatic species, but hunting in those places that would benefit those places that are not conducive to ecotourism. Well, of course, then you have the strict problem of the decline of species. So let's look not at elephants, but at lions instead, just to try and tackle your point, I think, head on. Um, with lions, you have a situation where there is profitability in hunting lions. It, you can pay $10,000 or more for the privilege of hunting a lion in Africa. Um, and you have a situation where some of these lion populations exist in places that are not going to be frequented by the casual tourists. Um, and that's all fine and well. The only problem is that the hunting industry, which has been working and uh, engaging in its deadly trade in Africa for the past, um, sort of say, 50 years, has not done a very good job at monitoring the population decline. And you have a situation in which, in 1980, you had roughly 78,500 African lions roaming the continent. So in 1980, just 35 years ago, when I was in junior high school, or whatever it was, you got 78,000 lions across Africa. Today, just 35 years later, almost, you've got fewer than 40,000, maybe just more than 30,000 lions across Africa, a full halving, more than halving, of the entire continent's population. So what that, that suggests to me is, even if one doesn't look at the individual lion that's being slaughtered for a trophy, but you do care about threatened and endangered species, you're dealing with a situation where those lions are being decimated by the hunters and quite frankly could again go extinct in our lifetime without strict regulation. And Born Free was one of the organizations that in 2011 petitioned the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to list the African lion as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And after collecting comments from scientists and the general public all over the world for three years, doing its own investigative analysis at the Department of the Interior, holding a stakeholder meeting that I personally participated in, but so did the Safari Club and others, 
The service has just come out in October, late October, with its finding, and that's a proposed rule to list the lion not as endangered, but as threatened under the Endangered Species Act, which one normally might look at as a lesser category of risk and a lesser category of protection. But in this instance, the Fish and Wildlife Service was very clear that it would only allow importation of lion parts of trophies from Africa if they came from a country that had a proven, sound, scientific management program for the lion species. So even though it's not a complete ban on importation of lion trophies, it does set a very high bar and a very rigorous framework for ensuring that the lion trophies that are coming into America are only from those countries that have a plan for keeping viable lion populations in perpetuity. And we think if you're going to come short, if you're going to stop short of banning all lions coming into the country, that's probably as good as you're going to do. And it is something that is truly going to benefit the species in the wild. Well, once again, I think that was an excellent answer because you bring in all the other issues. It's not just a black and white issue. But it leads me to two questions, and we don't have a lot of time left, so hopefully we can address both of them. One, the industrialization of the canned lion hunting that South Africa is getting into and um, the effects on the wild populations. Do we want to end up with a bunch of canned lions without any wild lions? And then it would lead me into the captive issue, and I know it's a very sticky wicket, and maybe we can get into it, maybe not. The Copenhagen Zoo's killing of the giraffe and then feeding that to the lions, and then four months later, killing the lions. So they're two very different things. One's a wild issue, one's a captive issue. Let's start with um, the industrialization of lions for uh, canned hunting. Sure. Well, it's obviously a tragic situation when you have these lions that are not only going to be slaughtered for sport, um, but they're going to be individually slaughtered for sport in such a way that they might be wounded first, they might be tethered, that they're confined. And unlike their wild counterparts, of course, they are confined for their whole lives in small areas. So I think the canned hunting industry is definitely a cruel industry. It surely doesn't guarantee a swift kill. And in fact, these individual animals may very well um, be treated more cruelly than their wild counterparts, who at least can live wild and free until they meet their untimely demise. But more importantly, I think, in terms of the global view of lions in these canned hunting operations, you've got a situation where, A, these canned hunt operations will be supplying their facilities with lions from the wild, so there still is a negative impact on the wild population, uh, but also, it simply feeds the trade. So the more you have people talking about killing lions in canned hunts as a way of regulating the lion trade and protecting wild lion populations, you have people who are equally going to kill wild lions and simply launder those carcasses as captive lions from canned hunt facilities. It's no different than really any other type of wildlife trade. You breed bears in small cages in uh, bear farms in China and you say that that's going to solve the bear poaching issue because we're just going to breed and sell bile and gallbladders but of course American black bears are equally poached to supply that trade tigers are bred and kept in captivity in China to supply the trade in tiger bone and tiger wine but all the while tigers are poached in India to supply that same trade so it really doesn't work to have these captive facilities uh, it definitely doesn't benefit the animals but quite frankly for us in America, there's another issue, which is the keeping and breeding of lions 
for the pet trade or for photographic opportunities or for zoos, roadside zoos, circuses, and what happens to those lions at the end of the day. And some of these lions, when they're no longer able to be kept in roadside zoos because the roadside zoos are being shut down because of their poor animal welfare conditions, or the photographic opportunities are shut down because they can't care for these animals before anymore. Uh, we have found through our born freeze investigations that these lions find their way to slaughterhouses in places like Illinois, and that those products of those slaughtered lions, lion meat, goes to restaurants all over the country as sort of a PR gimmick to sell lion meat, lion tacos, lion burgers. And we've been campaigning on that for about the past five years. And one of the beneficial outcomes of the lion listing under the ESA is that these lion meat operations will have to shut down because you will no longer be legally allowed to commercialize lion products in interstate commerce as a result of the threatened listing under the ESA. So when we look at the lion issue, we definitely look at wild lions, canned hunting operations, but also the domestic trade and individual lions and see a great need, quite frankly, across these entire suite of activities. Well, you've just covered the gamut and it just keeps firing more and more questions and I could go on and on. Unfortunately, we only have a short amount of time left. So let's bring this to the captive issue. And it really does come down to the human ethic, our value system, and changing our mindset, as Adam has been telling us, to re-renew our relationship and the aesthetics and what we call value with our wildlife. So that brings me to the point that I talked about, the Copenhagen Zoo and um, breeding lions in captivity for zoos, whether it's a species survival plan or not. And they went about a very public um, display, which I think was good in that they did it publicly, of killing an, a surplus giraffe to feed it to four lions. And then four months later, very publicly announced that they were going to kill two of the lions, uh, three of the lions and the cubs to bring in a new lion for genetic diversity. We've got four minutes. Well, it's pretty easy to tackle that one. There's simply no excuse for breeding these animals in captivity for a lifetime in captivity when they're wild animals. But more importantly, there's no excuse for killing live, healthy animals simply because you think they're surplus or because the genetic diversity doesn't meet your breeding operation guidelines. I mean, the fact of the matter is that at the end of the day, we have to accept an ethic that we owe something to these wild animals, that they can feel pain, that they can experience suffering, and that they have a right to life, and that if we're going to bring them into this world and if we're going to keep them in, ca in captivity, we at least have to treat them well and not kill them prematurely when there's no justifiable medical veterinary reason for doing so. And I think that really gets at the heart of these issues and quite frankly gets the at the heart of the captivity industry, that you have a situation where you have animals that are bred or imported from the wild and these animals come into captivity and, and they're kept in captivity their whole lives, but it's just because of human entertainment. It's truly not acceptable um, and the animals quite frankly deserve better. I thank you because this has been an incredible conversation and it once again truly highlights and what we've been highlighting over the past several episodes dealing with the captive issues as a result of attending the PAWS conference 
of that it really is about our choices, us human beings, not only our survival on the planet in terms of ecosystem sustainability and viability, but the animals that have been here for eons before us and our attitude towards them. So once again, Born Free has gone about in a variety of ways, which is so important and rare. Really, it's rare in a lot of organizations, as Adam was saying. We have a lot of singular focuses. We break it down into the nano parts, but we have to sort of bring it back to the big picture. And Adam, you succinctly stated, and especially in that last uh, answer to the question, the justification. Um, you know, we're very good at justifying our actions. So once again, um, we have like a minute left. What would you say would be the takeaway for, t- for today for our listeners? Well, I think it's that we have to look holistically at these issues and we have to just sort of base everything that we do on a, a very simple level of respect for wildlife and wild places and that we should all share a desire to keep the natural world uh, as bountiful and beautiful as we possibly can without human interference. And that human interference includes steel jaw leg hole traps in our forests and zoos in our cities that shouldn't have wild animals unless they've been rescued from deplorable conditions and that we shouldn't partake in a wildlife trade that depletes wild populations and brings species to the brink of extinction. So at the end of the day, if we have this healthy respect for wild animals and wild places, I think we'll all be better for it. So it's a very big picture. What can we, us, me, an individual, our listeners, what, what is the action we can take that we know we're making a difference on a daily basis? Sign well, petitions, think- causes, yes, but... Yeah, I think, quite frankly, we have to make our voice heard. You know, look, legislators listen to the people that they represent in Congress. And even though we might not get our way at the end, we talked a little bit about some of the legislation we've been working on. You know, somebody who comes to bornfreeusa.org signs up for our action alerts and then takes one action every month or one action every week is going to make a profound difference over the course of a year in terms of animal welfare and wildlife conservation. So I think that's the real message. Make your voice heard. Thank you. And that's um, one of our mottos. Uh, We have only one Earth. If we don't care, who will? And for here at Voice America, it's speak up. The world is listening. So once again, every action we take, whether it's taking that one minute to sign a petition and send a cause petition or go to bornfreeusa.org and sign up for their action alerts to donating a dollar, five dollars or whatever you can afford. This is the giving season. Let's give back to the world. Born Free is a great place to do it. And we're out of time today. Thank you, Adam. It's been an extreme pleasure speaking with you. Happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you, and have a happy holiday. And this is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 